The Gist is brought to you by Credit Karma. Don't pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you get your credit report right now absolutely free. Just visit creditkarma.com save to get started. There are no strings attached and no credit card is required at creditkarma.com save. And by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash gist and using the promo code gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, January 11th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I want to make clear that this interview is for the exclusive use of Miss Kate del Castillo. And Mr. Sean Penn. So it begins the interview between El Chapo, the Mexican actress Kate Del Castillo, and yes, Sean Penn. Not since Chaz Palminteri had that one-on-one with Radovan Karadzic, or perhaps not since Elliot Gould's sit-down with Jonas Savimbi of the National Union for the Total Liberation of Angola. Oh, that was a good one. Oh, wait. Do you remember when Adrian Barbeau chatted amicably with Klaus Barbie for Melody Maker magazine? Has a pairing of thespian and thug gone so swimmingly? This 10,000-word article in Rolling Stone had plenty of atmospherics and almost no information. We learned, for instance, that El Chapo considers himself a businessman, that the demand for drugs drives his business, that he dreams a regular amount, and that he gets along well with his mother. But we also learned that Sean Penn passed wind in front of El Chapo because Sean Penn told us that, quote, At this moment, I expel a minor traveler's flatulence. Sorry. And with it, I experience the same chivalry he'd offered when putting Kate to bed as he pretends not to notice. We escape its subtle broom, and I join my colleagues inside. B-R-U-M-E. It means mist or fog. Like a bargain basement dime store novelist, Sean Penn writes of El Chapo, quote, He is also a humble rural Mexican whose perception of his place in the world offers a window into an extraordinary riddle of cultural disparity. It became evident that the peasant farmer turned billionaire drug lord, six hyphens in that phrase, seemed to be overwhelmed and somewhat bewildered at the notion that he may be of interest to the world beyond the mountains. Penn is like Elmore Leonard crossed with someone who can't write a lick but grabs the pencil out of Elmore Leonard's hand. Thrilled to his description of when El Chapo asks Penn about Penn's friendship with Hugo Chavez. I speak to our friendship in a way that seems to pass an intuitive litmus test measuring the independence of my perspective. Penn is a Chavez apologist and also an El Chapo booster. His armed guards seem nice. Quote, my impression of his crew is more in sync with what one would imagine of students at a Mexico City university. Clean cut, well-dressed and mannered not a smoker in the bunch. I would assume students at a university wouldn't be that well-dressed, clean-cut, and would smoke. Terrible analogy. Overall, Penn approves of El Chapo's methods, relatively speaking. Quote, unlike many of his counterparts who engage in gratuitous kidnappings and murder, El Chapo is a businessman first and only resorts to violence when he deems it advantageous to himself or his business interests. It was on the strength of the Sinaloa cartel's seemingly more calculated strategies, blah, blah, blah. Well, let me now quote from a Strat 4 assessment of the Sinaloa cartel's methods. You will find no plumes of wordsmanship or broom of gas in these words, quote, 
instances of Sinaloa brutality abound. Then they start talking about some of the organizations that Sinaloa empowers to do their dirty work, like Los Negros, where the leader tortured and executed four Los Zetas members in a video sent to the Dallas Morning News, or CJNG, which dumped 35 bodies in downtown Veracruz, and Sinaloa enforcers left groups of dismembered bodies in Nuevo Laredo, accompanied by Narcomantata's signed El Chapo on several occasions. They also executed people who they thought were sympathizers with Los Zetas, but weren't just innocent people killed by the thugs of El Chapo. So was this Sean Penn Rolling Stone interview worth it? Well, not since the entire staff of Eight is Enough embedded with the Namibian mercenary force SWAPO, the Southwest African People's Organization. Okay, okay, listen. I could fire up the random actor slash nefarious international player generator all day. I will return to it in the credits. But let's just say that after reading this drivel, I have more respect for the pens that tried to hold El Chapo than the ones wielded by Sean. On the show today, I spiel about the noisome byproduct of a large aquatic mammal in San Diego. But first, disruption, eruption, what's your function? Maybe you made a New Year's resolution, and maybe that resolution had something to do with your credit, to get some insight into your credit, to be proactive. Well, you need a place to start, and that place is Credit Karma, because what Credit Karma does is they offer actually free credit reports with no strings attached and no credit card required. It's really easy to use. There are 45 million members using Credit Karma, and when I say no strings attached, that's the big thing. There are plenty of places to get credit. Some of no strings attached, they're the government sites, but you can only access them like once a year. I shouldn't say like, you can only access them once a year. So Credit Karma, you could go and check and see how it changes over time. There are a lot of other sites that say we'll check your credit. All they really do is steal the government site, but then make you sign up for a credit card and basically sucker you in. Credit Karma does not do that. Credit Karma's business model is about after you get your credit report, they may recommend, and it's just a recommendation, a product like here's a credit card with a lower APR. Actually, that's quite a useful suggestions sometimes. So visit creditkarma.com slash save right now to get your free report. That's creditkarma.com slash save. There is no promo code for the gist. Why? Because like we said, it's totally free. So they can't give you 10 or 20% off. It's free. It really is free. And they're not trying to sucker you in. Creditkarma.com slash save. Disruption. It's a good thing when things are going bad. When things are going good, wouldn't it be a bad thing? Yet these days in business, it's always seen as a good thing, or at least a buzzword. So let's disrupt this mindset about disruption. And joining me now is Adi Ignatius. He's the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review. He doesn't just look at it linguistically and think it's an overused word. The Harvard Business Review has studied what disruption really means. Hello, Adi. How are you? I'm fine, Mike. How are you? When business uses it, and I think they just use it almost as a synonym of new or look at me or in the way that marketers will say rebellious, you know, breaking the mold. But is there a agreed upon definition as it's being used, as Uber uses it, as all these tech companies using using it, disrupting the styrofoam? Yeah, agreed upon, no. I mean, you know, this the, the, the term and the idea and what we're excited about comes from you know, a specific academic with a specific theory, and that's Clay Christensen and some co-authors, disruptive innovation. You know, he first wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review in 1995, 
it ha- has been hugely influential. It's the only business book we think Steve Jobs ever read. Jeff Bezos requires all of his executives to to read it. The Economist called it one of the six most important business books of all time when he did it in book form. So that's a specific use of the term, disruptive innovation. And Clay has his own very specific definition of it. The question is, there's sort of a debate in my world about whether, let's you mentioned Uber or Tesla, whether those are disruptive innovations. Clay would say they're not. To you and me, it seems meaningless. Well, of course it's disruptive. Just look at what's happening. But but the, the, the theory has value, and we can, we can talk about why that is more than just semantic. Right. So the analogy might be we use words like evolution, but Stephen Jay Gould would say, no, it's really specific. And he would also talk about you know something like punctuated equilibrium, and here's how it happens. And Clay Christensen... I mean, he talked about how companies that have really changed the world have this uh, shared quality of being, as he called it, truly disruptive, and they seem to be crazy at first, and they seem to be going against the grain, and that's exactly what you need. And to business people, that was very flattering. People wanted to be that. People didn't want to see themselves as the steady guy who never changed anything, you know? It appealed to their self-image to be this swashbuckling, disruptive type, so everyone wanted to say they were disrupting. The question he was trying to answer was, you know, how are these companies, industries getting wiped out overnight. Mm-hmm. And it can't be because every single CEO is stupid. So something else is going on. And there's a, there's a force that's part of, you know, Schumpeter's creative destruction. I mean, you know, this is the evolution of business. There are winners, there are losers, there are winning industries and losing industries. So he was trying to look specifically as how does that happen? And can you analyze it? Is this a pattern? So the, the pattern that he identified that he thinks is important is that you have successful incumbent companies and they get better and better they serve their customers, they know their customers, they add on more features, they get better and better. And then at some point, somebody else comes in at the bottom and the incumbents dismiss them because it's cheapo, it's not a threat, you don't take these these people seriously. We're IBM. They're Apple. What are you kidding me? Exactly. Yeah. So then these 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 upstarts, these disruptors come in and they they might tap a new market that wasn't even a market of the incumbent beforehand and get people, you know, who might not have been buying whatever the product is to buy for the first time. And then of course they move up the ladder. They they start selling an adequate product and then it gets better and then the threat comes up from the bottom. And suddenly the incumbent's customer base is at risk. So Tesla then wouldn't be a disruptor because they're making a product that the other big auto companies really aren't making. I mean, you could talk about the Chevy Volt or whatever, but it's a new product. Yeah. And that That would disqualify them from being a disruptor. It doesn't fit the model. I mean, Uber in some ways is the most interesting case. Yeah. um, Because Uber, talk about disruptive in the the normal sense of the word. It is completely upended. The uh, you know the, the the sort of taxi business now and the comportment of the CEO is disruptive and he spoils for a fight and yes it seems and also to the consumer it seems like wow this was an old sclerotic thing that has been opened up so why isn't that disruptive yeah so, so this is a sustaining innovation by yes by, I'm not defending it necessarily but but by but his it's why definition. it doesn't fit the definition we're not disrupting you're improving right yeah and you know his his research has shown six percent only six percent of sustaining innovate of companies that come in with sustaining innovations even survive. Uber looks like it's it's set to be the outlier. Now, you could say that Uber is disruptive in the uh, limo market, 
if you figure, you know, you and I driving on our spare time suddenly are, are knocking at limo business, that's more of a traditional sort of bottom up serving a new market that wouldn't have taken limos before. Right. So you, but but in the in their big business or the taxi business, it doesn't fit that definition. It's you know, in normal terms, it's disruptive as hell. I mean, that's also true. What's uh, what are some other companies that bill themselves as disruptive? Because you can't not these days that really aren't. You know, in the intro to our latest issue, or you know, I, I cited a reference of some company talking about its disruptive mayonnaise. Yeah. You know, I don't know what that means, but but, it, but as you say, it's, it's a term. Every... mustard. That was the company. Yeah. <laughs> everybody, everybody wants. Yes, it is. It yeah. is a, a badge of honor to be a disruptor and not merely an innovator and not merely some company with some product. Okay, so Linnaeus invented taxonomy. And because of him, we know what phylum a moose is and what phylum a butterfly is. But you know who doesn't care? The moose and the butterfly, right? It didn't actually affect the world. He just described it. Did Clay's description of these things actually affect the way businesses conducted themselves, the way consumers reacted to businesses, the American economy? I think, yes, you could definitely find examples where that's true. The importance in this isn't in the terminology, but if a disruption is happening, if a company is coming after your business in that way, then you need to you need to know what that is and you need to respond appropriately. So that would mean adapting your strategy. It might mean developing sort of parallel capabilities where you're continuing your sustaining business and improving that, you know, at the margins, but creating kind of a parallel unit that is really, you know, out disrupting the disruptor or that is competing on that level too. And if not, you could you could suffer the fate that, you know, you name it, a lot of industries have faced when the right. disruptors got good. So there are probably a lot of people who are really good at their jobs who are working for the big IBM type company and we're told we got to do things totally different. We got to, you know, tear down these offices and be more like a disruptor. And that just might be a panic born of the fact that this phrase and this idea got hot. True. Sure, you got to innovate, but it could foment a little bit of panic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, true. Now, I mean, look at so. So, what should taxis do? Yes. Yeah. So, it's not disruptive. Well, there's no comfort in the fact that well, this is not taxi. Yeah. Guess what? Disruption. We've been using the wrong term. I'm still right. out of work. I think Thanks. Kind of yeah. Job. Yeah. But at least, my, right. Right. My medallion license is still uh, halved in value in the last four years, for instance. Yeah. Now, and and one reason why this industry, you know, it took so long to disrupt it may, may be just the regulation, you know, huge mm-hmm. amount of regulation that exists in certainly in New York and in most taxi industries, sort of prevented something like this from happening until the technology was so good and customers got it so quickly and just demanded it. It's still, you know, they're fighting market to market whether this thing can exist. But Did this idea, did the embrace of this idea that's now being challenged, did it lead to the funding of companies that shouldn't have been funded? They were rebellious and they seemed to fit the model, but they maybe weren't companies that deserved our capital investment. I, I can't document that. I mean, there was a, you know, an investment vehicle that was set up not by Clay Christensen, but based on his ideas mm-hmm. and with some, at least, initial discussion with him. How did it, it do? It did not do well. Isn't that um, always, it's so funny how often that is the case. I mean, it didn't, you know, it was only around for a year and it was a time when the market was getting hammered. So yes. it's, it's not really a, a good test, but, but, but it's something out there for critics of the theory to say, well, look, it, it, when it was applied, it didn't have, you know, the question of these theories is not simply, are you accurately describing what you're seeing, but is it predictive? Mm-hmm. 
and and it's valuable if it's able to be predictive. And the critics have said, well, you know, these investments didn't go well, so case closed. In the new issue of the Harvard Business Review, you talk about the emotional organization. So this is a trend, embracing empathy, but there's an article, the limits of empathy. A trend, collaboration, but there is an article on collaborative overload. It seems that in the world of business, like in so many things, there is a trend and then there is the counter trend. Do we actually gradually make progress or do we just, you know, disabuse ourselves of all the ideas we ever had? So let's take collaboration. Yeah. The article that that you're talking about is about too much collaboration, collaborative overload. Now, even in this article, which is making the negative case, it concedes that, you know, collaboration is essential. It's been growing for all the right reasons. So so in this article, they found 80 percent of people's time is spent either in meetings or basically in email sort of dealing with your colleagues' requests. They conclude that is not a very good use of our time. The, the result is you get burnout of individuals, and at a certain point, you, this all sort of saps productivity, and that it's the job of managers to really sort of monitor this and don't default toward collaboration in all cases. Really think about, you know, what you're doing, who's doing what, and create time that's not collaborative. So we're not talking about going back on the idea of collaboration or flexible work. Maybe they are there. I don't know. But we're talking about refining it so yeah. that the bad parts of it get stripped away. And this, this article has had a great response. I mean, part of it is because, you know, people love when you set up the prevailing conventional yes. wisdom and, you know, poke holes in it. I work at Slate, I know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole enterprise built around that. Yes. You know, I would say this one, to be fair, it, it's to challenge the excess, but it's easy to sort of latch onto them. Some many people are saying, I told you this collaboration thing was blown. You know what you're doing? You're, you're disrupting my ideas about collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> you really are an innovator. No, that's uh, not technically disruption. Yeah, absolutely. no, nothing I, ever I, is. <laughs> Addy Ignatius is the editor of the Harvard Business Review. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Salesman, even the word doesn't have a good connotation. And when you think about the kind of product that you can't get without salesmen, you're never happy about it, right? Like the real estate industry pretty much forces you to use brokers in a lot of ways. They lobby Congress and auto dealers. God, wouldn't you like to know the price of a car? That's why some dealerships advertise no haggling. Well, anyone could advertise no haggling if they're just screwing you on the price. And then there are the mattress salesmen. I don't get this. I don't understand why you need a salesman to buy a mattress. I know it's a big purchase, but I just think of it like they know it's a big purchase. So some guy will take, I don't know, 10, 15, 20% that you could have just spent on a good mattress. Now, if you want to talk a really good mattress where I'm the only salesman you're going to hear from, we're talking about Casper. Casper combines premium latex foam with memory foam, and the price is right. Mattresses often cost over $1,500. You get a Casper mattress for $500 for a twin-size mattress, $950 for a king-size, and all the gradations in between. The best part about it is, let's say I'm lying. Let's say you're intrigued, but let's say, is he lying? If I'm lying, give him the mattress back. There's a 100-day tryout period. 99 days into it, you could say, yes, I believe that it has premium latex foam and memory foam. I'm still giving it back, and Casper will take it back. It's risk-free. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. You know about the free trial and return policy within 100 days. You're sleeping on that mattress. You're not going to a showroom. You're sleeping on the very mattress, and you get to decide if you want it. And right now, you could get $50 off any mattress by visiting casper.com gist and using the promo code GIST. 
Terms and conditions apply. And now the spiel, sea lion, smell lion. La Jolla, California, home to beautiful homes, breathtaking vistas, well-manicured golf courses, and reams and reams of sea lion shit. Sure, where I live, New York City is cold, crowded, and the sea lion smells like pee. But this suburb of San Diego is warm, beautiful, but the wafting odor of the sea lions cling to the nose like failures cling to the San Diego Padres. I know this because I heard a report on NPR that was so pungent, so evocative, that it took me there, mind, body, and nose. It was perhaps the most target-rich report I've ever heard, so I wanted to do an annotated version. Here now, the story, the NPR story on San Diego's sea lion poo, the gist annotated version. Something smells rotten in the La Jolla area of San Diego. Bird and sea lion droppings have accumulated on ocean bluffs for years there, creating a powerful stench in the wealthy seaside town. Residents and business owners are so sick of the smell, they have now sued the city. But as Claire Tregesser from member station KPBS reports, clearing the air is not so simple. All right, that is 22 seconds worth of intro, and I am hooked. When he arrived at La Jolla Cove, tourist Bruce Just was greeted with more than just a view of sparkling ocean water below. second I stepped out of the door of the car, I says, wow, that's a pungent smell. Since this is public radio, I bet what tourist Bruce actually said was more like, oh my God, it smells like sea lion shit. Most locals know the smell is the droppings of sea lions and birds. Bird droppings. I get that phrase, bird droppings. They're in the sky, they drop. But sea lion droppings? I don't understand that. I prefer ploppings. Minor point. Take it away, Claire. But the Omaha, Nebraska native was unaware. Poor, naive Midwesterner. It's going to take four or five years before the sea lion crap smell becomes trendy in Omaha. And by then, La Jolla will have moved on to jellyfish placenta or something. Three years ago, then-Mayor Bob Filner stepped in to fix the problem. You've heard of Independence Day? Well, this is end the poop day. That is barely a pun. How is a mayor who can't even make a pun going to solve the sea lion poop problem? It turned out it wasn't. See, he didn't. Maybe if he had committed more to the whole Independence Day thing. Perhaps it is fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom, not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation via sea lion excrement. We're fighting for our right to live, to exist, to at least teach these braying, disgusting aquatic mammals to use some frickin' Febreze. Filner couldn't fix the problem because government regulations say cleaning the rocks can't send runoff into the ocean. That means no power washing the bluffs, spraying cleaners on them, or scraping the droppings into the water. Did he ever consider a program to ask Sarah Palin to fly by in a helicopter to assassinate the sea lions? Even if you don't actually shoot them, if you just scare the shit out of them, that'll still work. The city has a duty to remove the cause of the odor from the rocks. Lawyer Norm Blumenthal represents the group called Citizens for Odor Nuisance Abatement. They came up with solutions, including carting the waste off of the bluffs. Looks great on a college essay. A slogan was scoop the poop. That's what we called it. Hashtag scoop the poop. They also pitched more creative ideas. Hire a guru that would be able to talk to the sea lions and convince them to make the rock's not an attractive place to 
lay on. His name, Dr. Pooh Little. When you boil it all down, though, it really is a quality of life issue. Don't boil it down, man. That only makes the smell get worse. Get Dr. Pooh Little back in here. You are a glorious sea creature. To the sea you must go. To bray your wondrous bray. To crap your incomparable crap. Sea lions do not like to be wet when they're out of the water. So we've talked about a misting system. A misting system? What are we What are we fighting sea lion crap or constructing a poolside cabana at the Bellagio? Misting? Another option comes from the piers in San Francisco. A line which has PVC pipe on it. So when the sea lions try to haul out, that pipe will spin on a cable. We may be overthinking this, people. In fact, we may be overthinking this as people. Who is the higher life form in this scenario? I'm beginning to wonder. The slogan is, you know, go to La Jolla, the most beautiful place in the world that stinks. That's not a very good slogan. But neither is the other one. La Jolla, it's like a rendering plant with high taxes. So he will continue his lawsuit until the air over La Jolla is as clear as the view. For NPR News, I'm Claire Tregesser in San Diego. Pretty good, but I think I can improve it. So he will continue his lawsuit until he renames the sea lion Cecil and convinces a dentist from Minnesota to visit town. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, our producer, embarked in a scintillating panel discussion with Carlos the Jackal and Steve Buscemi. For years, executive producer of Slate Podcast Steve Lichtai had his own podcast before there even were podcasts. It was co-hosted with Adnan Khashoggi, the lick tie goes to the drug runner, peaked at 73 in the news and malefactor category of iTunes. Chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bowers, arranged a sit-down between subcommandante Marcos and pop star Sia as part of an aborted MTV Unveiled initiative, The Gist. We once witnessed a confab among... Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, Martin Mull, and Leslie Ann Warren. Also, the kleptocratic president of Zaire was an effort to promote the sequel to a popular film of the 80s. It never came off. But somewhere, Mobutu and the cast of Clue 2 exists as an event for the ages. Umpuru Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.